This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Armchair Explorer On Location, travel and adventure stories recorded in the field in the most immersive way possible, designed to give you a glimpse of what it feels like to be there for real. Are you ready? Let's go. Today we're going to be shedding our full jackets and hats. I don't know about you, but on my street, all the leaves literally just came down. All that beautiful color is gone. And though I am looking forward to getting out into the mountains, strapping my skis on and my snowshoes and having some winter fun, I am already pining for summer and some warmth. So today we're going to jump into our swimming trunks and snorkel masks and we're going to head to one of my favorite places in the States. It is the Florida Keys. And if you don't know about the Keys or where they are, they're that archipelago of about 44 islands that just curve away from Florida's southern tip, heading out into the Caribbean. They're more like the Caribbean in many ways than mainland America, and they're world-renowned for their snorkeling, their diving, and for their relaxed way of life. And this is why I truly love them, known as Keys Time. They are the only place in the world I've ever been that actually applaud the sunset. What an amazing tradition that is. I feel like everyone should applaud the sunset, especially with a cocktail in your hand, which you're definitely going to have when you watch that gorgeous sunset on Key West. But the people in the Keys, they don't just love the ocean. They're super passionate about protecting it too, which is what today's episode is all about. Marine conservation. It's fascinating. We're going to have some incredible experiences. We're going to meet a man with a million grandchildren. We're going to learn about bubble butt syndrome. Don't worry, only turtles get it. And we're going to learn how rope and cement are saving the reefs. They're doing a lot of amazing work down there to protect the reefs because they are absolutely beautiful. Today's episode is also going to sound a little bit different. Unfortunately, I don't get to present all our shows. And this one, Elizabeth Harriman lastly took the reins. She's also a travel writer. She knows the keys inside out. And her enthusiasm, I think, just really comes through on this episode. She's a huge fan and supporter of all things ocean. So I think you're going to enjoy hanging out with her. And just a quick disclaimer before we jumped in. Our on-location episodes are big productions. For this series, we actually did 30 episodes. They're all shorts. So they're all about 10 to 15 minutes long, as they will be today. But we covered a whole range of subjects from adventure and nature to the arts and music and, of course, key lime pie and Hemingway. So it's a lot of fun. And you can actually go and check out more of those shows at Florida Keys Traveler. That's the name of the full podcast. 
But because they're such big productions and they take such a long time to make, we partner with people to help make that possible. And for this show, we partnered with the Monroe County Tourism Development Council. They help with the funding, but the storytelling, as always, guys, is all ours. That's what we do. And you can be certain that I would never share anything on this show that I didn't think that you would love, that I love, and that I'm really proud to share with you. So we're just about to get going and we're going to start off in the growing lab of the Plant A Million Corals Foundation. It's a really fascinating story. This is one of my favorite episodes of the whole series. And you're going to learn more about coral reproduction than you ever expected. So grab that favorite tropical drink, grab that cocktail, applaud the sunset if it's happening, sit back and enjoy the Florida Keys. We've lost half the world's corals in my lifetime. Coral reefs are less than 1% of the bottom of the ocean, but they're responsible for 25 to 40% of the world's fisheries. Dr. David Vaughn is a marine biologist working to restore the coral reefs. So if you were a national park that had tourists and the forest burned down, you, you would replant that forest pretty quick. And coral restoration is taking place here. In fact, Researchers in the Florida Keys are pioneering innovative techniques to save the reefs around the world. And David Vaughn is one of them. He's putting coral restoration on warp speed. I want to plant a million corals before I actually retire, and I'm no spring chicken. I'm gonna be 70 years old this year, and I hope to have a one million corals produced by the time I'm 72. Dr. Vaughn is founder of the Plant a Million Corals Foundation. Today, producer Jason Patton and I take you to his facility on Summerland Key. Watch your step. It's, it rained this morning, so it's a little slippery. So this is our water well over here. So these are corals which actually came in as three colonies rescued from a seawall that was about to have construction and those corals would have been lost. So we were asked to go and rescue these coral colonies, bring them back so that we can prevent them from being killed. And uh, what we've done is we've made 720 microfragments of that coral so that each one of these will grow up to be a coral the size of that head. And these will grow back to a full size in as little as less than two years that would have taken 15 to 25 years to grow. So just amazing. And what we're looking at, I mean, I can't believe it. We're, we're looking into this water tank and we're seeing these tiny, and you can actually see the designs of the corals and these tiny about, what, a quarter of an inch big each. And you can see the actual living polyps, those oval type circles with the little tiny what looks like tentacles, and that's what they are, of that polyp that's living. The portion that it is alive is, is both a plant and an animal. It's a coral animal polyp with a type of marine plant that lives inside it, utilizing the sunlight for photosynthesis, just like a tree would, and produces the energy that then allows it to take calcium out of the water and make its own calcium carbonate skeleton, like our bones. And that's what grows and builds the reef and the habitat. Clever coral. Well, you mentioned that because they're in these tiny pieces, they're gonna grow 
a lot faster than, say, they would naturally. You basically discovered this technique. Yes, well, um, fragmentation is a method that people have used in, while in home aquariums. The massive corals do not grow that way. They grow through a sexual reproduction cycle, and only one in a million makes it maybe every 10 to 100 years. However, we've lost a decent amount of our corals from climate change and other factors. So we don't want to wait 100 years till our reef to come back. This is a method now, just like reforestation, that we can rebuild the underwater forest. We first decided to try the sexual reproduction cycle in a laboratory. However, it took a, a year before they got up to a little bit bigger than a head of a pin. And I got uh, basically distracted by this and said, this is way too slow. This is not gonna grow a forest in my lifetime. So I put those dozen or so corals on the bottom of the tank and one of them stuck and I didn't know why, and like any good acropore-type coral, it had grown itself and attached to the bottom of the tank. And when I pulled on it, I heard a crack, and I broke into pieces one of the first test tube baby corals. I was disappointed, and I thought, this thing is not going to survive, in fact, it's not gonna grow, and that's not what happened. Those little polyps were stimulated from that wound healing process to grow back faster, just like your skin would if you had a cut or a bruise or lost some of your skin. It scabs over in weeks and grows all new skin immediately. The coral is doing something similar, and so we just help what Mother Nature has evolved with by making a lot more of these pieces as small as we can, and therefore we're making many instead of just one or two. In fact, let's go to the next tank and I'll show you uh, some that came from just one coral colony. So you'll see how small we can cut them. These are just little chips, almost the size of something that you would put as a stone inside a ring or a bracelet. And you can already see some of their tentacles reaching out from the polyps on these first three. Yes, you can see like tiny little, like almost like tiny little threads coming off of each one, like tiny antenna. What we've done is we keep track. You'll see there's a, a letter and a number from each one. That means that all of these came from uh, coral number SB14. When they touch each other, they do not fight like most corals would do, trying to be competitive for the space and not letting another one grow over the top of it. But in this one, you see they touch each other and they fuse back together because they came from the same parental piece. They recognize each other and you'll see one the size of a grapefruit that's completely fused, as we call it, and one the size of a large dinner plate completely grown over with living tissue that would have been a 15 to 75 year old coral head and this was done in two years. That is just amazing. So it's like they're all brothers and sisters. That, that's right. They're not only brothers and sisters, they're, they're identical twins. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're planting literally a large enough coral head to have great chances of survival. And not only that, what we found out is that most corals do not 
become sexually mature until they're about 15 to 75 years old. Wow! Unless they're the size of a 15 to 75 year old coral. Size matters <laughs> and not age. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow the corals say, they don't say, they, they must signal each other and say, hey, we're the size of a mature coral, let's start acting like one. And they Hello, start to sailor. become... <laughs> that's right. Start to become sexually active and, and produce gametes and spawn. <laughs> Does that kind of make you feel like a proud grandpa? Absolutely, and yes. I hope to make millions more. <laughs> Love it. And what's wonderful is that when you come here, you can actually see it in operation. So once it gets to be uh, this size, how do you get the coral out to the ocean? Well, that's not the complicated part of it. The complicated part that is that it, it takes us six months to grow a coral. It only takes us a minute to plant one. So we use uh, vessels and boats. Uh, we use divers, just like you would be, you know, looking at you were going for a dive on a reef, except we, we actually bring the coral pieces uh, with us and we cement them onto a bare area of the reef so that we've actually made new living reef. It almost seems like cloning. Is there any downside to them being inbred, so to speak, or the lack of genetic diversity? Yeah, so we're doing an asexual type of reproduction by actually cutting multiple pieces. But as you can see, we use multiple genetic strains. These numbers are different genotypes of the same species. So we're actually producing many of the genotypes that are diverse out there. And we will be planting some of these near each other because it takes the same species but a different genotype or strain in order to cross an egg and a sperm and, and to fertilize. And so once they get out in the ocean, they'll figure it out. They'll get boyfriends and girlfriends from different families, just like on land, right? That's the hope. The hope is that we can't just keep uh, making it and placing corals, is that we're getting corals to a survive to a reproductive age that Mother Nature again will be able to flourish out on the reef in Mother Nature. We just don't want to wait hundreds or thousands of years for that to happen. There's no time to lose, which is why Dr. Vaughn regularly travels around the world teaching his techniques to coral restoration groups in places like French Polynesia and the Maldives. Because the real trick is it's a big ocean. And this can't be just a small backyard gardening uh, project. It's going to have to be done at scale. And hence the name of our foundation, Plant a Million Corals. Our expertise is going to be showing people how we scale this up to make more than just a drop of water in the ocean. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. 
Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the things I loved about that episode is I've written about different barrier reefs in the world and the problems that they're facing from the Great Barrier Reef to Belize's Barrier Reef. And it's all massive, massive problems. And it's all really sad and difficult to see where those solutions lie. But I love this story because it gave me some hope and people are doing incredible things. Next up, watch out, it's bubble butt syndrome. We're heading to somewhere totally unique, the world's first veterinary hospital dedicated solely to sea turtles. How cute is that? The Turtle Hospital is on the island of Marathon and we're going to step inside. Right now, we're gonna be meeting Betty Zirkelback, the hospital manager. All right, so this is one of our 30,000 gallon pools and we are looking at Rebel. Rebel is a loggerhead sea turtle who sadly has a disorder that prevents him from being returned to the wild. A sea turtle's spine is located in the back of their shell. Sadly, if a prop cuts through that and damages certain nerves, it leaves them with something we call bubble butt syndrome or positive buoyancy disorder. They're no longer able to dive to the bottom, which is where a sea turtle's food source is. So we have fixed weights on their shell if they're otherwise healthy. And the ones here are actually our blood donors. So not only do they help teach visitors about sea turtles, but they're saving other sea turtles. The only thing keeping them here is that positive buoyancy disorder. And you can see those two little round things adhered to the back of his shell or his carapace. And they are lead weights covered with marine epoxy. And that is why he's able to go to the bottom like he is now. So what is he doing? He's just hanging out. <laughs> sea turtles are pretty solitary animals unless it's mating season. In shipping days, they say that loggerheads got their name because when they would be at the service, the, the captain would think it was a log in the water and say, log ahead. I don't know how much truth there is to that, but that's what I hear. <laughs> and we have another logger ahead over here trying to get our attention. That's Chuckles. Hi, Chuckles. And you can see Chuckles, uh, sadly, is another non-releasable turtle. You can see weights adhered to the back of Chuckles' shell. Very feisty, otherwise healthy. I think you're right, he heard us giving the attention to Rebel and he came over and started splashing. And then there's another one right next door, a couple over in the other half of the tank. Yeah, so there are seven species of sea turtles in the world. We're lucky enough to see five of those species in and around the Florida Keys. You've met the loggerheads, now you can see their neighbors here. These are juvenile green sea turtles. And if you notice, what do you notice about this turtle? 
He's clipped on his flippers. Right. So that is a very good sign. So pretty much they are the tickets to the ocean. So that is port. And swimming up to port right now is starboard. So port and starboard, <laughs> they were rescued together in the lower keys. They came in with that horrific disease, a fibropapillomatosis. They had all their tumors removed and they're gonna be released on Valentine's Day together. Well, and they're so beautiful. And even though they're called green sea turtles, they really don't look green so much as, oh, different kind of coral or rust colored and the patterns on their shells and on their flippers and on their heads. I mean, it's beautiful uh, geometric patterns. Why are they called green sea turtles? Yeah. So they are stunning, those patterns. That's gotten them into trouble over all the years that humans have been on Earth. Those pretty patterns cause people to take the sea turtles and make arts and crafts out of the shells. Tortoise shells. Tortoise Whatever. Shell. Correct. So these are the green sea turtles because they're the herbivores of the group. So their diet is primarily seagrass and algae in our oceans. And if you think about it, when they're in the ocean eating that seagrass, there's probably little crustaceans and different types of protein in there. But their fat is green, and that's where they get their name. Clearly, they have different personalities. Do they get to know their human friends? I'd like to think so, but they, like any other animal, they're going to condition to food. So uh, they're okay. going to come up when they hear our voices, hoping that we have a snack. So don't get too pleased with ourselves. No, but I do have a story. Um, we transferred a loggerhead sapphire to a facility in San Diego, and she went to this big, beautiful display tank, and there was a window in the tank, and they were having an event for her arrival, as you can imagine, and there's hundreds of people. And when the founder, Richie Moretti, and I went to the window, she came right over to us, so somehow she knew us. <laughs> yeah. I believe that. Yeah. Port, I would guess to be about five or six years old. Starboard is probably more like eight to 12. And how old can they be? Um, they can go upwards of 100 years. We really don't know. Sea turtle scientists have not been around long enough to know. How long can they uh, stay underwater? In a resting state, they can stay underwater for up to five hours. Do so you want to go meet some more turtles in the back? All right. So I see you have the Turtle Hospital Ambulance. We do, we actually have a fleet of ambulances. We have four and we cover over 200 miles of coastline. When calls come in for rescues, um, we have our animal care staff, they live in these buildings that you're looking at. They live on site and they man a stranding hotline 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so how can you tell if a turtle is in, I mean, I suppose if it's something really obvious like you know, a gash or something, You, but how can you tell if a turtle needs rescuing? So if a sea turtle is floating and unable to dive, or if it dives down and pops to the surface really quickly, that's a good sign that they need help. And so then people would call here and say, I saw a turtle seem to be in distress, such and such a place, and you send the ambulance. We do, but this is going to be out at sea. Ooh. All right, so that's a, that is a good point to bring out. So the first thing we have to do is convince that person to stay with the turtle. If it's a small enough turtle and the people are comfortable, under our permit, we can direct them to pick up the turtle and put it on their boat, and then we'll meet them at the dock in the turtle hospital ambulance. If it's a very large turtle, which as you see with Rebel, it's going to be a lot for a person to handle, then we will recruit like the Coast Guard or Florida Fish and Wildlife, and we'll go out on their boats to actually help rescue the turtle. So how did the Turtle Hospital get started? 
Um, this is a good place to talk about that. You see all these green buildings. This was once the Hidden Harbor Motel. Ooh. Richie Moretti, the founder and director, he retired as a multimillionaire at age 40. He came down to the Keys to relax and bought this old mom pa motel. He was an avid fisherman, he and his partner, Tina Brown. And they were part of these fishing tournaments. So what they started doing when they would catch these big fish, they'd bring them in, they'd weigh them, and they'd put them in the saltwater tidal pool. And the school found out about it, and they asked if they could bring kids to learn about local sea life. Well, now we're about the mid-1980s when Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were all the craze. So groups of kids would come, and they would all ask to see a sea turtle. Well, Richie went to the state of Florida. He asked if he could put a sea turtle in the pool, and they said, no, they're protected. The only way we can give you a sea turtle is if you help the sea turtle. And that was essentially the first permit and how the turtle hospital started. And now, the hospital offers 15 daily guided tours, providing a behind-the-scenes experience to meet resident turtles and learn about their rehabilitation. Betty leads us to an open-air sheltered building with what looks like an Olympic-sized swimming pool. This is a natural tidal pool I mentioned, and this is Hanson Bowie. She is our largest turtle, and she weighs in at 355 pounds. A green sea turtle can get up to 600 pounds, and I'm gonna give you some food you can feed her. Oh, wow. Okay, so now I'm gonna to toss these little pellets into the big tank, and hopefully she'll come and eat them. As she gobbles up the pellets, Hanson Bowie lets out little spouts of water, which is how sea turtles clear excess salt water from their nose and mouth. Ah! It looks like a little fountain coming through their nose. Here's some more. Oh. Might be the cutest little thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Will spout every time. So she was scrubbing a couple of turtles' backs with yes. like a brush. And you notice something, some of them are hanging out, right? They like that. It's who, who doesn't like a back scratch? It's what we call sea turtle spa day. <laughs> a sea turtle spa day. Yeah, that looked like they were really enjoying it. They were lining up. They are. Does this serve like a dual purpose of cleaning them as well? Yes, so if these turtles were in the wild, there's cleaner fish and cleaner shrimp that would be eating that algae off their back and really helping them out. And here in the tidal pool, we don't have any of those cleaner fish and cleaner shrimp. So we give them a, a little scrubbing frequently to help keep that algae down. Now the algae doesn't bother them at all, but it just makes them more comfortable and they can more streamline in the water without that algae. And as a bonus, they really like it. They really like it. <laughs> I think I would too, I might dive in there. You have some favorites? Usually our most critical patient, the underdog, is usually my favorite because that's who we're spending a lot of time with medically and with treatments and that I really am a big believer in positive energy. So just really, I, I, I wrap that energy around them. Not only physically do we do a lot with them, but just almost some of them we, you know, will to keep alive long enough that we can fix them, so. My grandfather was an avid fisherman and I would go seining with him and that's something where you drag a net and you get all kinds of sea life and some of the little fish had the unfortunate task of becoming bait but I got to see seahorses and blowfish and he took the time to really teach me about all the little 
sea creatures that we would find in that seine net at night where my other two sisters didn't want to be in the dark bay, but it was always interesting to me. And I went to school for biology and I became a technical scuba diver as my hobby. So this is really a culmination of all my skills and really more blessed than I can tell you. And the other thing I tell young people is get your education, get on your path, but leave room for things that are bigger than your dreams because I would have never dreamed that I'd be running a world-renowned turtle hospital. I've been paid to go swim with whales out off the Dominican Republic and things that you really can't fathom, but if you keep your passion alive, I mean, that's there for a reason. So do what you have to to survive in life, but every day put energy towards your passion. And I can tell you, when I started here 11 years ago, I didn't know anything about sea turtles. So I just was always into our oceans and marine life, and the turtles have really called me to them. And the things I'm doing now, the energy I have, I, I can't even take credit for it. I think it's the universe working through me, and I feel like I'm really blessed to be where I am. How does that feel when they recover? It's amazing. Um, sea turtles are very resilient, but we see a lot of death, as you can imagine, in the rehab world. So when you can get one like Port and Starboard, those two that are getting ready to return to the ocean, people say, do you miss them? Not at all. Sadly, there's always one coming in right behind it and just to see them get back out into the ocean, um, a wild animal, it's the best feeling. I love sea turtles and actually my daughter Elise loves sea turtles more than anyone else in the world and my favorite ever snorkeling experience ever was her first time snorkeling and we were so lucky because we found a sea turtle and very quietly and cautiously and at a good safe distance we just floated above her and just got to swim with her for about an hour. It was amazing. I'll never forget it. So if you do get a chance to go over there and check out some sea turtles and how they are being helped in the Florida Keys, that is a great thing to do. So finally, for our last stop, we're going to be heading over to the National Marine Sanctuary where some fantastic coral restoration efforts are underway. There's a team of scientists and coral experts there that are working hard on a project called Mission Iconic Reefs, one of the world's most ambitious coral restoration projects ever undertaken. And their greatest weapons in this fight, check this out, are rope and cement. I mean, I started the Coral Restoration Foundation, which is probably one of the biggest uh, organizations of its kind in the world. Ken Niedemeyer is the founder of Reef Renewal USA, and like David Vaughn, whom we met earlier in this series, he's a true pioneer of coral restoration. But he does things a little differently. So Reef Renewal USA is my second uh, go around on doing coral reef restoration. And uh, it's more of a local community-based operation. And that's our, our focus is, you know, I, I look at the magnitude of what we need to do and I feel like the only way we can do that is to engage a lot of volunteers in the community to get the community to own this, get them to own the solution. You know, we're focused on restoring coral reefs. We're focused on innovating and making it more effective, cheaper, faster. Well, you mentioned the magnitude of the challenge. What is the magnitude of the challenge? Well, the, the reefs have suffered a lot of different um, natural and unnatural stressors over the years. Part of it is more nutrient pollution. It's more nutrients in the water that are feeding algae that then grows and smothers the corals. And the algae also release 
uh, toxins into the water and you know, if there's a coral and an algae growing side by side, the algae will usually end up poisoning the coral and kill it. So there's, there's a lot going on. And so is there a way to control the algae? Well, there was a way up until the mid-1980s, and that was a type of sea urchin that, that grazed on the algae. It was a long-spined sea urchin, and there was millions and millions of them. And then there was a disease outbreak that ran through the entire Caribbean, the entire range of the sea urchin. And when it was all done, it, was like, it only took a few weeks to get through the Florida Keys, and we lost you know, probably 98% of the urchins. So they're like the gardeners that would go out and cut the grass and pull the weeds. And if you fired the gardeners, then uh, like if you had a golf course, uh, pretty soon your golf course would have trees growing in it and weeds. And that's what's happened as these urchins died off and they haven't recovered in sufficient numbers to make a difference. So it's uh, a big problem. It's a bigger problem than most people realize because that inhibits uh, coral larvae from settling because the bottom is covered with algae and then it also all the algae that grows, uh, like I said, is poisoning the, the corals that are there. So uh, we miss those gardeners. So a lot of people are looking at that as, you know, that's what we need to do on a bigger scale. So I think it's really, really important. But about 20 years ago, I said, I, I can either do sea urchins or coral. I can't do them both. There's just too much to do. And I said, I'm going to do coral. I, I really like coral. I've always liked coral. So that's where I'm focused now. Why have you always liked coral? I've always had uh, saltwater aquariums in my bedroom and when I was a little kid and you know watching the Jacques Cousteau in the 60s on television and the, you know these just all these different colorful fish and corals and just just a you know incredible place you know live coral reef is just probably the neatest place in the world to me and so I was just fascinated with the corals I was fascinated with the fish my earlier life I was a tropical fish collector so I collected tropical fish and shipped them all over the country and in the course of doing that I realized there's no future in tropical fish collecting if the corals all die. So that's kind of when I shifted gears and said, what can I do about it? And I, you know, I figured I can do something that most people can't do because I know the, the reefs inside and out and I, I live here, I have a passion for it. So Ken began growing corals, initially to sell in the aquarium trade. But as soon as I started growing the corals, I realized these corals need to be on the reef, not in somebody's aquarium. And so I started looking into, you know, how can I get permission to put these on the reef? And actually I went to the National Marine Sanctuary and I said, hey, I got all these corals, they're growing in the ocean. Can I put some on the reef? And they go, no, we don't have a way to let you do that. There was no permits available to do it. It was a long process to figure out how to do it. And so I, I just kept pushing on the doors and, you know, getting permits that have never been gotten and just, kept going and going and it's a really big business now but 20 years ago <laughs> there was nobody doing this it was just a you know a dream so you like have a have an underwater nursery where you grow the corals yeah so we have a, a nurseries up and down the keys and these are offshore nurseries usually close to the reef line the corals are grown on a structure that looks a little bit like a tree it's got a central trunk in the middle and branches on the side and you hang the corals from the branches with monofilament line and the tree kind of floats midwaters and it's is super effective it became the you know the standard that people all over the world are using now so you invented it though yeah and, and we have a new idea now we're kind of moving beyond the tree so it's a it's always like i said a faster better cheaper that's kind of what drives me 
What's the new nursery going to look like? So the new nursery, instead of looking like a tree, is just a piece of rope. <laughs> For a lot of the corals, it, you just uh, untwist the rope, stick a coral in it, and let the rope twist back. And so it's still a midwater nursery, but instead of this tree structure that cost, you know, $150, you have a piece of rope that cost 3 or $4. And it's super effective, super cheap, can be done anywhere. And, uh, you know, that's kind of our new standard that we're going to in our nursery program. Then is the next challenge to get the corals from the nursery to the reef? I would say that's our biggest uh, bottleneck right now. We can grow more coral than we can plant. Now it's not hard to get that permission. It just, it's a very labor-intensive thing. You've, you know, some of these corals grow pretty fast and you have to take them off that structure and then attach them somehow to the reef. We've tripled or quadrupled our production just in the last couple of years by moving away from what we had used, which was a two-part epoxy, to uh, just regular cement. You know, we use a, like a little bowl of cement and tip it upside down and stick the corals in that, and you can plant 10 corals in a minute. <laughs> That's really fast. Wow. And so you take scuba divers out there and go down, and is that how you do it? Yeah, so we have our our staff and our you know our contractors and volunteers, you know, local people. But then we also have uh, groups of recreational divers that come down to visit the Keys, and they want to get involved. And you take them out there and give them a you know an experience planting coral. And a lot of times those people then come back and do it again, or they say, "How can we get more involved?" So you know, it's it's a it's an outreach and engagement process. Sure. Well, and what a great thing to do on vacation. How good would that make you feel when you go back and tell your friends in the office? It, it does, too. And they, you know, they have pictures and those people have a great experience. And I've never had somebody go out on a boat and say, oh, I hated this. <laughs> they all they all come back thinking this is awesome. And, you know, we always show them this is what we planted last year. and This is five years old. And they see the vision of what can happen and they get real excited. What is that like to see that progress? Ah, boy, it's almost like having kids or something, you know, it's like a, this joy that you get, at, you know, I remember when my first child, of all four of them were born, it's like, wow, it's just so exciting, it's so exhilarating, and to go out there and see a, a reef come to life, uh, it's just super exciting. I mean, maybe not everybody would get excited about it, but I sure do. It's an underwater wonderland, and the fish come back, and, you know, the whole bottom changes, everything changes, and, it's, and then you see the excitement of people seeing that, and sometimes people have never even seen that particular species of coral on the bottom, and ah, boy, it just doesn't get any better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can imagine. So what is the magic of that underwater world? One thing about the Florida Keys is we have a ton of fish down here. I think the fisheries are, are well-managed, and you know, just about any given reef has a lot of fish on it. I mean, more so than anywhere else in the Caribbean, I think, and just beautiful fish. And even just everyday fish that people eat are still pretty fish. I mean, they're like yellowtail snappers. And the fish, especially at our nurseries, I mean, they'll come right up to you. They're really friendly. And then there's all these colorful, you know, sea fans and the coral and just it, so much going on. And Do you have a favorite tropical fish? If I had a favorite, there'd be two of them. One's a French angelfish, which is a really pretty little black and yellow fish that when they swim, the small ones, they kind of flutter like a butterfly. And then the other one would be a yellow-headed jawfish. And they live in holes in the bottom, but they're this pearly, fluorescent-y color, you know, yellow and blue and green. And, and then they have personality. They look around and they have big eyes. And 
in our nursery, when we get in the water, I mean, a lot of these fish, they come right up to you and they follow you around and, you know, oh yeah, there's one with a little spot on his back. And you know, they, they know us, we know them. They're our friends. That is so cool. So you mentioned engaging the community in, in this effort. Can visitors participate? Like if they want to come and help with the coral nurseries? Our real vision is, you know, is empowering the community of the Keys, up and down the Keys, to get them involved in it. And look, this is something that you can do, whether you're a diver or not, whether you're a business owner or just an individual, there's a huge need out there. And if we want to preserve what has made the Florida Keys so special, um, we have to start putting it back together and we have to start taking some action. And there's there's things that anybody can do now. and. There's ways to get involved. And we feel like if we can get the community to own this, then it's, you know, we're halfway there. If you own it, you're gonna take care of it. So that's about all we got time for. Thanks so much for listening, guys. And if you like these three episodes, there are 27 more episodes to check out. Everything from history and nature and adventure and kayaking and art and literature. You won't believe how much stuff and fantastic, amazing stories there are in the Florida Keys. We absolutely loved making this project. And I really think you're going to love digging deep into the Keys too. So go and check that out. The podcast is called Florida Keys Traveler. I'm going to be sharing a few more episodes next year too. So do keep an eye out for that. And you can also go to fla-keys.com to find out more about the show and how you can get out there and enjoy some of the stuff we talked about today. So thanks so much for listening to Armchair Explorer on location. We had so much fun making it and sharing it with you today. And we'll be back next week with our usual format. So stay tuned. Cheers. This show is produced by Armchair Productions, the audio experts for the travel industry. Thank you so much to Elizabeth Harriman Lashley, Jenny Allison, and Jason Patton for doing such fantastic work on this series. I'm Aaron Miller. I'll see you next time.